This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. As we near the end of 2016, I want to take stock of the field of globalization and education. What were the big ideas this year? And where are we going in 2017? For the final show of the year, I've invited Susan Robertson and Roger Dale, co-editors of the journal Globalization, Societies, and Education, to reflect on the year in research and to point to future directions. In our conversation, we discuss a range of issues facing education, including the limitations of mobility studies, the increase of migration worldwide, the rise of populism and anti-globalization movements, the role of trade deals in education, and the Hayekian worldview in which we find ourselves, where individuals, not societies or governments, are at the center of social imaginaries, and how this relates to educational privatization, private debt, and the discourse of choice. Susan Robertson is a professor of sociology of education at the University of Cambridge. And Roger Dale is a professor of education in the Center for Globalization, Education, and Society at the University of Bristol. Before turning to our conversation, I'd like to thank Fresh Ed's audience. Fresh Ed has grown quite a bit over the past year, reaching close to 3,000 unique listens each month. We couldn't have done this without you, so thank you. Thanks for listening each week. To see Fresh Ed continue through 2017, I need some help. Producing Fresh Ed takes an enormous amount of work and time, far more than one person can do alone. So I'm looking for volunteers to help share the load. If you're interested in joining Fresh Ed in any aspect, please send an email to will at freshedpodcast.com. Again, that's will at freshedpodcast.com. And of course, if you can't volunteer your time, Fresh Ed is always looking for financial donations to cover its small operating expenses. Any amount helps. You can find the donation link at our website, freshedpodcast.com. Have a wonderful holiday season, and I hope you enjoy the last show of the year. Susan Robertson and Roger Dale, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. Very nice to be here. Thank you. A new experience. I'm looking forward to it. How would you describe the current state of the field of globalization and education studies? I mean, it's been a, a, a turbulent year, would be one way, a roller coaster of a ride in many ways, um, and with huge implications, not just for the way we think about global processes and education, but, but actually, it, it, you know, the, the whole question of um, you know, the, the, the nature of the institutions that we have and, uh, and, and what might well be kind of happening to those institutions tucked inside nation states and within regions. So just very quickly, you know, the rise of populist politics, which uh, on the one hand seems to be kind of globalising. You know, uh, we go from Brexit out to uh, Trump, the president-elect, um, thoughts about France, potentially Netherlands and, and other populist um, political parties uh, getting some traction in the, the political arenas. And it seems to me that these, these have all got major implications, not just for education as a sector, but actually for 
I think the work that education is, is probably going to have to do in order to be able to help us put on the table um, different kinds of conversations about, about um, how we live in the world together, about how we uh, don't knee-jerk into you know, quick blames around you know, um, migrants and asylum seekers and, and so on. I mean, there are clearly very big structural issues, many of them we've been talking about, uh, including my colleague Roger. Uh, we've been talking about these in the journal. You know, big structural issues to do with uh, neoliberalism, the uh, ways in which uh, development agendas have privileged particular countries over others. These are long-standing um, issues and relationships, but they've they've actually created uh, almost a kind of um, chasms now that that and breaches that kind of feel as if there's been a shift in the. The, the, the axis of the world that's, and, and somehow we're going to have to try and uh, use all of the emancipatory potential in education and, and the capacity to be reflexive that education systems have some possibilities of generating in order for us to think about our, our societies and where we're heading and what kind of future we might want to kind of claw out of this uh, really troubled set of development. So that's kind of on the one hand. On the other hand, it is absolutely clear that, you know, we do see heightened uh, degrees of engagement. Um, I've been in New York earlier this year and uh, Sanders, Bernie Sanders, you can't help but be in England and know that Jeremy Corbyn has a huge backing amongst, you know, quite well-educated, very thoughtful um, <laughs> middle-class uh, young people, uh, but that's actually going to have to be more than a conversation amongst, you know, concerned middle-class young people. That has to be a bigger conversation and a more enlightened conversation uh, that engages um, a, a, a much wider set of the population. So, um, perhaps, Roger, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think, I, I mean, the, almost at one level we could say that globalisation has sort of grown out of hand, but at, an, at another level, it has become even more indispensable because we see, we, we, we've talked about political, uh, economic globalization and some form of cultural uh, globalization. But what we see now is in a particular way um, uh, a globalization of politics with the rise of populist movements uh, in many places. And I think that one of the things that really we should be thinking about in education is how that new populism everywhere seems to have as a fracture line levels of education, levels of educational experience and levels of educational uh, success. So we find it in, in the United States election we find it in, in Europe and not just with the UK uh, deciding it wants to leave. And it's very clear who decided they wanted to leave. It's very clear who voted for Trump in the United States. And there is uh, a, a section, a very large section of these societies who are feeling um, that they almost they have to cross an ed they've, they've been isolated by an educational divide, a divide in educational experiences and educational outcomes. And I think that's 
that's something that possibly has always been there, but it is also to a degree a consequence of the globalization, not only of the technologies of education, but a globalization of what really turn out to be, at the moment, uh, the false promises of education. We have, we, we, education offers to all. We have education for all. Uh, absolutely crucial, central issue of global uh, education uh, on a global scale. Education for all. Yes, education for all. But education for all is not necessarily delivering for all. And we have to look at the institutionalization of education uh, at, um, at national uh, and uh, transnational levels. And we have to look at who are the beneficiaries uh, and who are the losers. Um, because the more that educational education, as we know, this is old hat, but the more that education is seen uh, as the crucial element, uh, the more uh, the blame, the responsibility um, for individual success and failure uh, is pushed onto the individual because individuals are told you have had every opportunity. Education systems give you opportunity and you've had lots of opportunity um, and Sorry, I mean, you can keep on trying if you like. You can do some more education to try to catch up, which we know won't happen. So I think this becomes an absolutely, uh, uh, a, in, the, in the course of this year, has become a much starker and, and in a sense, much simpler, uh, almost global distinction. Do you think that, you know, this, the, the, the focus on the individual, as you were saying, and, and, and how education can contribute to inequality... Is this, in a way, a result from human capital theory becoming dominant, like the dominant way to think about education, that it's, it's simply a way for an individual to learn skills, to get better employment in the future, rather than thinking about education as somehow part of society, as a public good, as, as something larger than the individual? Is this, like, are we at the outcome of, you know, 40 years of neoliberal policies? I, well, can I come in here? I think that you, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think there's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So we have the rise of human capital thinking, which sits neatly, doesn't it, with neoliberalism, you know, this investment in yourself uh, and the initial kind of talk, you know, using uh, human capital theory enable big multilateral institutions like the bank to get involved in, in education in ways in which it um, had not historically um, but what what is so we have the rise of human capital its affinities with neoliberalism um, at the same time what you see uh, is the rise of finance capital um, and this very close relationship between finance capital as a fraction of capital and and political parties so a particular fraction um, Wolfgang Strake, who's the uh, former uh, director of the Max Planck Institute in, in Germany, um, has a very useful way of describing this. So what we've actually seen is the rise of the debt state and, and that replaces the tax state. And 
and, and that debt state uh, begins to emerge, particularly in the 1990s, where uh, the rates of corporate tax and that drop are uh, particularly low. And the movements also of capital, uh, rise of uh, tax havens and so on. So the state itself um, is it also loses its capacity to govern. So it, it, on the other one hand, it's governing through quite uh, pernicious forms of testing and so on, but it's not able to govern through forms of fiscal redistribution and so on. And what it's also then doing is that it, uh, it, it's borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. Um, it's becoming very creative about um, you know, off-balance sheet accounting techniques and so on. So uh, across many of these different countries, what we've seen is uh, a, 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 a huge expansion of um, the the nature of kind of public debt or the state's debt. Um, the, and, and now what lines up with this also is the rising um, household debt because essentially if you're responsible, you're also responsible for financing your um, own opportunities and so on. So the rise of the debt state, the rise of the indebted household, those, those two things um, and where the state has more or less found itself un, unable to easily uh, govern and certainly not govern um, huge big kind of interest in the economic sphere who've actually particularly in the United States I mean it's quite significant in Piketty we're talking about the end of 2015 now but throughout 2014 and 2015 um, the numbers of uh, books that emerged on you know um, inequalities from people like Stiglitz, from uh, writers like Danny Dawling, from the famous Piketty, uh, Capital and so on. And, and they're, they're do, what they're also doing is describing this kind of phenomenon that we're, we're actually talking about. So we've, we've seen big kind of structural shifts to do with how the, 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 the state, the state's unable often now to, it's got its hands tied, to actually deal with quite significant problems um, because it simply doesn't actually have the resources to easily do this and uh, perhaps where we do see some degree of success and not all countries have been in this, the same kind of boat. There have been forms of redistribution in places like Norway, um, not in Sweden. There have been um, to actually interesting, the Netherlands has remained fairly uh, equitable um, but certainly not in England. The United States is one of the most inequitable countries um, now um, in the world if we look at the Gini coefficient and so that vote for Trump is actually a, a, a vote it's a populist vote but actually it's a it's a it's a, a vote that actually um, comes off comes off the back of those complex dynamics to do with human capital theory, neoliberalism, the rise of finance capital, the uh, rise of the debt state and, and so on. And I can't see that, I mean, if we look at the policies that Trump uh, is promising, it's more of the same, you know, this is, so it's heading to the abyss even faster rather than, um, you know, this kind of nostalgic return to, you know, we'll take America back and we'll hammer the Chinese and we'll um, get manufacturing back. I mean, that's an old, I mean, I don't, you can't recover the past like that now. I mean, that's, that's, that is what populist politics is. It's an empty and hollow promise. I, I think to go back to, to, to the question about human capital theory and so on, I think 
Yes, that that was clearly central, but I think we need to see it as something actually wider and older than that. And I think we we need the triumph of the philosophy of Friedrich von Hayek. It's it's a Hayekian world we live in that says um, individuals should be uh, free to um, work for themselves and everyone benefits from this. And uh, we don't need any state because the state is uh, an unwelcome and unnecessary and unfair um, uh, involvement in what should be and what could be uh, a life run around the basic principle of the market which will solve everything. Uh, and so the train, in the famous analogy, the train pulls everyone along, but some may be in the back carriages, as it were. Now, I think that's the, that's the thing. And what, we, what we're seeing is um, increasingly, with the increasing um, um, gaps between earned and earned income and so on, uh, and and the total reluctance to do anything um, about uh, um, a, a, anything that is a collective uh, uh, state funding of anything, um, and it and and though it's not gone as far as it might have, the the argument about uh, the coincidence of individual interests. Uh, via education through its privatization so that you can get the education you want and why should everybody have to have the same education and so on. So I think that is what's, what underlies it and it's that philosophy that has created a few uh, uh, winners uh, but a lot more losers. Uh, the the um, In Hayek's analogy, the, the occupants of the final carriages are becoming uh, more numerous and noisier. And I think that's what we've seen over the course of this year. It's the culmination of a... Uh, there have been two or three opportunities for this. Simultaneous, very interestingly, um, the United States election and, and, and the British um, exit. Um, opportunities for... rare opportunities for um, expression of what we call populism, but what is really essentially expression of the, of the resentment to, of those who are left behind at the success of those who have seized the front. In, in your reading of the field of globalization and education research, have you found papers and articles and research projects that are actively uncovering this sort of, you know, the, 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 uh, the issues that are making the world so turbulent in 2016, the, the issues of inequality, the issues of privatization, the Hayekian world that Roger described, the financial capitalism that Susan pointed to. Are, are, are we finding these ideas inside the current research? I can say, I mean, Steve Cleese, uh, there was a special issue uh, that we worked on, um, and Steve Cleese actually has got a paper, he was part of this group, uh, on Piketty uh, that's coming through uh, Globalisation Societies and Education, uh, where 
Steve is actually talking about the particularly um, the both the rise of human capital theory and um, finance sectors and so on. So and and I and I think what we're trying to do one of the things actually the journals are able to do now is uh, use the. Uh, uh, the digital object identifier uh, system. So uh, we're able to get papers if we can fast track them through quickly enough. They don't kind of sit out there in a bank waiting for an issue. They can sit out with their digital object identifier. Um, and that means that we can actually be putting papers up and, you know, engaging with contemporary debates. You know, I was looking over some of the uh, papers in the last issue of Globalisation Societies and Education that has just come out and a uh, lovely paper in there on um, Syrian my, um, refugees uh, in Lebanon um, schools, hugely overcrowded and it's the uh, eternal um, uh, issue, isn't it, uh, education in emergencies, you know, which curriculum do you use and are you using the Lebanese curriculum? And all of the implications of, you know, uh, distressed people, um, you know, are you integrating them and with what kind of knowledge structures, how can these schools cope, you know, what about the teachers um, and so on. So uh, there are there are papers uh, coming through dealing with these issues, but um, I think it would be uh, really nice and we'd really want to encourage uh, any of our colleagues out there in uh, CIS and beyond to and those who are kind of involved with the Globalization Education Special Interest Group as part of the Comparative and International Education Society to, to, to kind of maybe um, perhaps pulling some issue, special issues together where we have deep conversations you know uh, around these kinds of issues uh, there's scope to do that, as opposed to just perhaps one-off papers potentially coming through, I think in our journal the special issues are particularly uh, welcome and successful because essentially what they do is give us scope to have some deep and coherent um, conversations. There is one coming through around um, market making and so on that uh, Yanya Komlenovic has uh, coordinated with some lovely papers looking at the rise of, you know, um, the digital as a mechanism of governing the problems of markets and and actually a paper in there from Curtis Reap who as you might know has been caught up in some very controversial uh, incidents in um, in Uganda and the expose to some extent or their efforts to try and pretend that he was there under uh, false pretenses um, in uh, in Uganda and uh, researching the Bridge International Academies. Um, but I want to use this as an occasion, Will, to uh, just quickly say that it's increasingly difficult to do uh, that kind of academic work. I mean, it's quite dangerous. I mean, Curtis's situation is uh, no way resolved at the moment. Um, and and we know that the more you privatise education, the more there are kind of vested interests uh, in there, the more there's efforts to enclose public sectors and their private uh, activities and, you know, potential for... Uh, you know, uh, e even corruption and so on, that, that actually that becomes incredibly difficult work. And actually, unfortunately, many of our own education institutions ask our students to do a kind of risk analysis in there. Now, 
I mean, this is potentially dangerous territory. Big corporations have got lawyers. They are quite ruthless um, in protecting their clients' interests and so on. And, and actually, I think uh, a special issue in and around those issues is absolutely critical. Um, and perhaps just one other thing that I think um, I would like to see some work being done on is, you know, sitting quietly out in the backdrop here is all of the trade negotiations um, that are attempting to enclose education, to make it a private good, to progressively liberalise that, to limit the state's capacity to uh, govern the education sector. So here what you have is um, a key institution that the state uh, is responsible for, um, and yet its hands being tied uh, behind its back in its capacity to govern. Through the all of the trade negotiations have a lock-in and progressive liberalisation and lock-in clause to limit um, political intervention and let the market work itself out. And I actually think this is an incredibly dangerous state of affairs. It's as dangerous as popularism. And that um, I think more of us investigating, opening up um, these trade issues, um, trying to, uh, because they're all done in secret, um, they've all got education in them. Uh, education is hugely important for trade purposes now, for particularly the developed economies. And there's huge huge risk. Um, they may well fall over all by themselves because uh, the, you know, the Donald Trump actually, you know, in his uh, efforts to uh, rescind things might actually all do us something of a favour by rescinding the Trans-Pacific um, Trade Agreement. Um, but that's, a, that's another issue I think we need to discuss. And Roger, what about you? What, what have you seen in the, the academic literature that is addressing a lot of the concerns you spoke about earlier? I, th I think it's, it, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I've, um, I have something, I suppose, of a, a, a bee in my bonnet about the, the mobility literature. It seems to me that it tends to be highly normative and think that, uh, and to be trying to find ways of improving mobility and so on. Now, I, I, and I think that's... Um, uh, unfortunate and and it, in the current circumstances it becomes uh, more and more I think a smokescreen for some horrible things that are happening. I mean intrinsic to mobility is the idea that people are, are voluntarily mobile uh, and they should be prepared to be more mobile because it's very good for them. Well, I mean, we don't have to look far to go and tell that to some people. So I think the distinction I, I would like to see, uh, well, I don't know if we could reconcept, we could rescue mobility now, but um, a matching, a matching um, emphasis uh, on migration. Um, migration, uh, it would be nice to have a, ma a matching emphasis on, in a sense, the sending countries rather than the receiving countries. Um, though because the receiving countries are the center of the official knowledge producing world um, that we are all involved in, then we get, a, I think, a distorted picture. Um, but it's this, the, these are responses to um, the, the kind of seismic shocks that go on through, I, I think, fundamentally through the uh, 
extension of um, to all areas of of uh, essentially of, of, of um, marketization and the um, absolute minimizing uh, of uh, any kind of uh, public sector that might be able to work. So I think we that's uh, that to me is is the big issue. There's a lot of work on migration. Uh, I've done a bit myself on migration into Europe, and it's extremely interesting to see uh, what happens to people when they arrive. But it's um, it's 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 solid, I think, by the association of migration with extremism as well, uh, and that, that's that's unfortunate, and it's something that I think. Um, we can possibly respond to, but can't do anything about. I mean, some of the, I mean, maybe also encouraging people to look at some of these not so obvious kind of counterflows, if you like. Uh, we can see, for example, in um, some of the data that uh, China's now a very large receiving country of um, particularly U.S. Um, students mobile to China, China in part, um, uh, yeah, encouraging students, yeah, well, that may well be temporary now, you're absolutely right, Roger, um, but encouraging students uh, to uh, go to China is partly based, you know, scholarships, quite a lot of it is um, study abroad, but what we don't understand well enough um, what that's about is this, uh, the workings out of what Phil Brown and Hugh Lauder call the global auction. And in other words, what they're talking about is the promise, as Roger said earlier, uh, of uh, you know investing yourself in social mobility and so on. And yet we see uh, high levels of uh, graduates uh, in, um, in jobs that uh, in no way match their uh, investments. They, in, in many cases, won't actually earn the amount of money into the future to pay down their loans and so on. So are, who's going off to China? Um, what's their motivation? Um, what are their experiences in places like China? How do they uh, sit in uh, with the uh, very distinct nature of the uh, education system in China? How do they kind of understand it fit in how do they understand Chinese society and and the kind of knowledge structures uh, which w will be distinctly different in China or is there a is there a westernization um, process going on there that enables a kind of a level of comfort so I think some keep, keeping our eye on some of those I mean I, I think the the, the um, movement large-scale really movement of um, uh, students from North America into China is a very good example of of the kind of the, the normative loading of mobility that I was talking about. Mobility is good. You have to be mobile. It's a mobile world, and if you want to make it, you've got to be mobile. But uh, it's um, it, it, the the studies of mobility just assume assume its goodness. That's why I, I said they're, they're very normative. Um, exactly the same sorts of physical movements are taking place, but when we call them migration, they become very negative. Uh, and I think that it's that kind of analysis that we need to make clear. Okay, I no, don't stop doing um, mobility studies, but don't actually pretend that that's doing 
anything more than describing what who is it Craig Calhoun calls the um, the lifestyle of frequent travelers and I'll give a, another example of this mobility and, and being normative but maybe even bringing in some of this the ideas of the inequality uh, the rise of inequality in the US in the work I do in Cambodia I, I met a university that partnered with a US university and they are telling me now that they are getting they have a dual they have a um, a program that does two years in Cambodia two years in America um, and so the the assumption was that many Cambodian students would sign up for this to get that American degree but what they're actually finding is that a lot of American students are signing up for it so they can go to Cambodia to pay cheaper fees yeah, yeah. That, that, that's no, and that's interesting. So these these kind of um, to some extent they're the unintended consequences, aren't they? They're logical if you begin to think about them. So I know uh, the branch campuses um, have become quite popular in part because what you can do is you try and manage the immigration you know issues. If you so you have a branch campus out there, so those immigration figures in your home. Um, country aren't looking problematic um, but individuals are making decisions and, and we can see these um, in some of the figures I know Texas A&M for example they'll have quite a number of American students out in their Texas A&M campuses in the um, the Arab region because it's cheaper to live out there study out there and so on so these these are very interesting um, institutional and national and also individual uh, decisions that kind of coalesce around how to how to manage a future where actually what we're talking about is where where education is regarded as central still in this sense to be socially mobile if you're not if you don't have a degree you're not you're not able to easily navigate um, any of the employment system, you know, the, the, the labour market systems and, and so on. Um, I, I actually, can I just put a couple of other issues on the table? I think that I'd, I'd love to see perhaps uh, so a bit of joined up kind of work and thinking. Um, and the umbrella movement in Hong Kong, which, uh, as you know, is the these were the yellow umbra umbrellas. There were ongoing protests, really, particularly engaged with by young people. In many cases in Hong Kong, they talked about them as young people who themselves were finding, you know, having invested in education, returning to Hong Kong, unable to get jobs and so on. But this also gets tied up with the um, the sense of a lack of democracy in Hong Kong. Um, but, but it'd be very nice to see a, a special issue where, you know, some of the different dynamics uh, around um, these issues that as they play out in Istanbul and Gizi Park, for example, um, and that's some, some of that's actually tied up with some different dynamics to do with uh, development um, in Istanbul and the relocation of uh, families to the outer edges. Um, how do those how do those all link up and what are their common and different dynamics? The Chilean student movement, the Occupy movement, uh, the uh, Umbrella movement, uh, the Arab Spring and so on. Um, and there's something that, that's very interesting about a kind of politicisation uh, in, in interesting ways um, that I, I, I don't think we've put our... I know there's discrete studies being done on Occupy, but who's pulling these together and what are their points of commonality and so on? That'd be a fabulous um, set of uh, papers if we could pull those 
together because it might help us also understand where the new energy and the new possibilities for thinking and the, the, a new future might actually come from and if we can kind of perhaps take some of that account which probably largely sits out into the social media now and begin to think with it uh, in particularly interesting kinds of ways um, maybe using new and different methodologies could we have some more visual work and that kind of happening here could you know for example even sitting on the website you know some visual moving you know podcasting materials and so it doesn't always have to sit you know, in the journal and in a text-based form. It might actually take um, some other experimental forms. So I'm just kind of thinking that, you know, we can open up some of our conversations in interesting kinds of ways as well. There seems to be so many different directions to go going forward. And, and I, I want to go back to something that Roger said earlier. He talked about the false promise of education. So Roger, what what would it mean for researchers to, to take that idea seriously, to say that the, the false promise of education is real, and now what do we do as educational researchers going forward? Well, for me, I mean, it, we take it as a first principle. That's the assumption, that education has never fulfilled its promises. Uh, uh, but that those promises um, are much more useful to those who make them than to those uh, who are receiving these promises. Um, if we look at it, um, it it's the, the whole notion of, of the, 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 the contribution of education to a social contract, if you like, comes through, uh, has been changed into education as uh, the means of enabling everyone to prosper economically, not to necessarily prosper uh, politically or culturally or personally even. Um, it is, uh, it, it becomes, it has been made highly instrumental because uh, from the start uh, it, it's become evident that um, most of the people who are doing better in the world um, were more educated. So there must be something in this correlation. And we take the correlation to say that's the, so the correlation is the same for everybody. But as we know, correlation is not the same as causation. And that slippage has happened uh, frequently. And it also happens, you know, um, uh, uh, on the part sometimes of beneficiaries. I mean, we, I'm one of the greatest beneficiaries. My generation is the, is the generation of the greatest beneficiaries of state education uh, that there's ever been, I suspect. Um, but there's, there is nevertheless that association between um, level of education and a justifiable claim to privilege. Well, it really seems like there are so many directions going forward for 2017. The big ideas and the directions that you've proposed really give us a lot to reflect on 
um, at the end of this year and, and into 2017. So, so Susan Robertson and Roger Dale, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed to end this year. And can I just say, Will, Fresh Ed, uh, from where I sit, actually um, offers such a wonderful uh, space for dialogue um, around these issues. So uh, in closing, um, getting close to the closing of 2006, I just want to congratulate you on such a fantastic initiative and wish Fresh Ed all the best for 2017. So um, great work, Will. I agree entirely with that. It's brings fresh air, comparative and international and global education. Thank you. Susan Robertson is Professor of Sociology of Education at the University of Cambridge. And Roger Dale is a Professor of Education in the Center for Globalization, Education and Society at the University of Bristol. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group, which take no institutional positions. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. It helps. And please be sure to visit us at freshedpodcast.com, where you can find an archive of this year's shows. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you in 2017.